Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVN Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology, or neuroscience in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVNH Consulting, North America. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. I'm very excited to be joining you for this episode and delighted to be introducing our guest, Professor Vanessa Bonds. Professor Bonds is a social psychologist and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She has been a visiting scholar at the NYU Stern School of Business and has taught at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Her research has been published in top academic journals in psychology, management, and law, and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and the Economist. Professor Bonds is an expert on help-seeking, social influence, compliance, consent, and why it's so hard to say no. Her first book is called You Have More Influence Than You Think, and was published last year. Professor Bonds, welcome to our Be Good podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Uh, thanks a lot, Vanessa. So thank you again uh, for joining uh, us uh, today for this uh, new episode of Be Good. Uh, Vanessa, you received, I think, your PhD from Columbia University and an AB from Brown University. Can you tell us more about how you came to be interested in psychology in general and maybe behavioral science and understanding human behavior? Uh, sure. I, you know, was interested in, I guess, what came, I came to realize was psychology for many years since I was very young. I was interested when I was in high school about, you know, how people learn and how people had different learning styles and different intelligences. And then I interned in an advertising agency and I was really interested in persuasion and communication. Uh, and I kind of didn't put together that those had this umbrella of psychology until I went to Brown and took my first psychology class a little bit later in the game too. It was my uh, second year there and I think it was the spring semester. and. I took this intro to psych class and I was like, oh, that kind of explains all the things that I've been interested in. Cause I was kind of floundering. I was like, do I want to be a biology major? Do I want to be an anthropology major? You know, I just wasn't sure. And then psychology just kind of pulled all my interests together and it was kind of love at first sight, I'd say. Um, and then the hard part was really kind of figuring out what part of psychology I was most interested in. So I was uh, one of the people who actually wasn't bored by all the, you know, neuron talk in the beginning of our, our class. So I was really interested in the neuroscience. And then at the same time, I was super interested in personality and social psychology. So uh, I kind of tried out a bunch of things. I worked in a sleep lab as a research assistant, and um, I eventually went back into advertising. And I did a bunch of things that were kind of psychology adjacent. Uh, and then eventually, I kind of landed on social psychology as my my passion and the thing I eventually got my PhD in. 
Okay, that's uh, great. And uh, I have to mention that Suzanne and myself have loved your uh, book. Uh, you have more influence than uh, you think. And we will talk a lot about this book uh, later. But uh, coming back again to your uh, background, could you share with us any mentors that had a particularly strong influence on you? Uh, do you have any researcher or the people who have played an influential uh, role in your professional career? Yeah, I think, you know, I when I think about sort of pivotal moments in deciding on social psychology, one of the main ones, so I actually, when I applied to Columbia, I originally thought I would do more neuroscience kinds of things. Um, I had really loved working in a sleep lab. I was interested in chronobiology, and I was interested in fMRI. And uh, then I was sort of preparing for graduate school by reading Nature articles. And this article, I saw this article by Ernst Fair. And it was his Altruistic Punishment in Humans article, which was a sort of a major, highly cited article. And I just became fascinated by the behavioral economics uh, paradigm and the experiments that he was using and the idea that, you know, these forces that make us cooperate with other people are so strong that we would actually punish people uh, and actually spend our own money or kind of punish ourselves in order to punish somebody else or take less. Um, and so I, there's something about that article that just completely blew me away. And I was like, that is the kind of research I want to do. And so that was kind of, I made the shift towards social psychology. And then when I went to grad school, I'd say I had two sort of two mentors. One was my formal advisor, Tori Higgins, um, and one was more of an informal advisor, I'd say, Frank Flynn, who I've done a lot of work with. And I just was so fortunate to have two people who were so supportive in their own kind of unique ways and had very uh, different and complementary sort of approaches to research. So Tori was very theoretically driven like he was just you know we could just theorize and philosophize in many ways um, and kind of just go really deep on ideas and he was also very just inspiring like you would walk in and say I'm lost and you would walk out of his room being like oh my god I I have my whole plan figured out and I you know everything is great and then Frank was very practical like how is this going to help people how you know how does this apply to the real world um, he was very like on the ground, let's figure this out together. And at the same time, they were both so supportive in their own ways. And I think that really, that really aided my approach. Like I have this kind of, I, I love the theory and playing with theories, but at the same time, there is this reality check of like, okay, why does this matter in the real world? Yeah, and beyond uh, mentors, uh, do you have uh, one experiment do you have conducted, do you have heard about that stand out in influencing your thinking? You know, I'd say the most direct influence on my work uh, is Milgram to some extent. You know, so many of my paradigms are, people will say, well, that kind of reminds me of what Milgram used to do. Um, and so, you know, of course, the infamous shock experiment, I think I come back to that a lot. And, you know, I think once we get into some of my studies, that'll become more obvious sort of what, how that links up. Um, but also his sort of lesser known studies, like he has a study where he just sent his graduate students onto subways and had them ask people to give up their seats. 
And he just wanted to see, like, what are the norms of compliance with this kind of request? How many people are likely to do this? Um, and the, the best part of that study, I think, is kind of the descriptions that the people, his graduate students, gave of having to go up to people and ask them for seats on the subway. So they were interviewed years later by uh, this New York Times journalist who was curious about what it was like to work with Milgram. And they talked about how just excruciating this experience was. Something so simple about going up to someone and saying, you know, will you give me your seat? And they just found it so painful to ask someone for something to the point where Milgram actually went out and did it himself on subways. And he himself said, I couldn't believe how awful it was to actually have to make this request. And so I think that that has always stuck with me and I think is definitely a big inspiration for the way I think about, you know, a lot of the things in my research. And so you mentioned, Vanessa, that that has had a big influence on some of your studies. Could you give us an example or two for folks who haven't read your book yet? For sure. So, you know, Milgram had his his students go out and make these requests, and he was really interested in just what are the actual compliance rates with a request like this. He just kind of wanted to, to see what the norms were. And in my studies, which I started with Frank Flynn when I was a graduate student at Columbia, uh, we're really interested in people's perceptions of what is likely to happen if they were to ask someone for something. So, and it really follows kind of directly from the psychology I was describing that People go into asking someone for something, even something really simple, and they they just find it so you know uncomfortable. And part of that is they don't know how the other person is going to react. And what we find is that they actually are overly pessimistic about how the other person is likely to react. So we put people in situations where they ask for similar kinds of things. So we bring participants into the lab and we tell them, you're going to go out into the world and ask strangers for favors. Um, and we ask them beforehand, basically, how many people do you think are going to agree? So specifically, we say, like, you're going to have to get three people to loan you their phones. Right, And we say, how many people will you have to ask before three people agree? And then they go out and they actually do this and they keep track of the number of people who agree. And we find that they tend to underestimate how likely people are to agree. So they expect a lot more rejection than they actually get. Um, and in my studies too, just to add some sort of uh, observations about doing this, similar to the, the Milgram story, right? I, our participants come into the lab we tell them you're going to ask strangers for things. And there is this palpable anxiety in the air. Like, there's just, you could tell that they are stressed out about this. They ask us questions like, what if no one agrees? Are we supposed to just come back? You know, what if this takes longer than expected and we don't finish in time? So they, there's all this anxiety. They go out and they do it. They come back and it's like they bound back into the lab and they have these big smiles and they're like, that was so much easier than I expected. And they interpret it as like people were so much nicer than I expected. I think that is true to some degree, although there's some nuances to that. Um, and so you really you just see kind of the effect in front of your eyes. So fun. So speaking of your book, your new book is called You Have More Influence Than You Think, recently released. Can you tell more? Tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it, and how did the idea for the book come to you? Yeah, I'd say you know, in some ways, I had it's on things I've been thinking about since I was a graduate student, since I started running these studies where we had people ask for things, um, and that really started 
back in graduate school when I was working with Frank Flynn on a study. And to do this study, we wanted a diverse adult sample. And so I would have to go down to Penn Station and ask people to fill out questionnaires. And so every day I would get on the subway and go down to Penn Station and go up to these people waiting for the train uh, and ask them, will you fill out my questionnaire? And these are like busy commuting New Yorkers. Um, and at the end of it, you know, I finished it up. I, I found it really just like we were talking about excruciating to ask people. Like it was just this painful experience to have to constantly ask people for things. And so when the study was over, I was relieved and Frank and I were looking at the data and I was like, it, in the end, it didn't work, right? Our study didn't work. And I was so bummed about it. I was just like, I, it's so upsetting that it didn't work because it was so hard to do. It was just awful asking people for these things. And one of the things I recorded was how many people had agreed and what they said. And he was looking at the data and he was like, you're describing how awful this experience was. Like in your head, this was terrible. But I'm looking at the data and most people are saying yes to you. And you're not getting any of these you know, awful comments that I imagine are in your head. And so that was sort of the beginning of this idea that the way we imagine influence will go, the way we imagine influence did go in our heads is often very different from reality. And so we followed that up looking at requests, you know, in the kinds of studies I was describing, like basically putting our participants in the same position I was in. And I, we did that for years and years, and it was just such a robust effect. And I was like, this is such a huge effect, but it, it still was one domain. And then I encountered Erica Boothby, who's a colleague of mine who I've worked with, um, her research in some other domains and realized that actually this finding that what's in our heads is not the same as reality and we're often overly pessimistic applies to all sorts of other contexts. And so in her work, she finds that, you know, we think people notice us less than they do and we think people like us less than they do. And so once I sort of encountered in other domains a similar pattern, I was like, this, this feels like a book that would be worth writing, that in all these different domains, we seem to have overly pessimistic ideas about our own influence. So interesting. So before we go into more details around the book, we've already heard some interesting takeaways from your research and from some headlines from the book. But if you were to sum it up as one key takeaway for your readers and for our listeners that is the most important learning from, from your book, what would you say that would be? So I, I feel like there have to be two. And it's, the book is kind of, there's two main points. One is that I want people to walk away reassured that they do have influence, that they do matter, that when they say something awkwardly, other people aren't noticing it, they're hearing it, they're internalizing it in many ways. And so that's reassuring, but coupled with that, you know, if people are paying attention to you, if they are internalizing the things you say, a certain amount of responsibility comes with that influence. And so I think it, they go hand in hand, like feel reassured that you matter, your words matter, your presence matters, but take that seriously, right, with, you know, it's the classic Spider-Man quote that with great power comes great responsibility. So I think both those things are really the things I hope people take away. Vanessa, we will uh, come back to this uh, uh, key uh, point. Your starting point is about the invisibility of our influence. You call it, I think, the unseen influence because 
you mentioned that we have more, much more influence than we think. Could you first come back to uh, explaining this idea of unseen influence? Yeah, and so this is sort of one of a few ways that I talk about that we have less influence, or we have more, sorry, we think we have less influence than we actually have. So we have more influence than we think. And one is that people tend to notice us more than we realize. And so this actually comes from work by Erica Boothby, who I had mentioned, on something she calls the invisibility cloak illusion. And this is the idea that as we sort of walk around the world in our daily lives, we leave a wake that we don't realize, right? We walk by people, they notice us, we may you know, have our headphones on or we may be kind of zoned out and walking around and not paying attention, but other people are noticing us, they're noticing the things that we do. Um, and that means, based on a lot of research we know about social influence and social norms, that we are creating norms that other people are responding to and we are potentially impacting their behavior and the way they think about things. And so the way that Erica has looked at this is she's asked surveys, for example, of people who are eating in a cafeteria. And she'll ask people, you know, how much were you observing the people around you? And how much do you think the people around you were observing you? And she finds this difference in people's reports where they really feel like I was looking at everybody else, but no one was really looking at me. Um, and so we we tend to, because we view the world through our own two eyes, you know, we see everybody else, they're very salient, we don't see ourselves, we forget that we're also an, an object that other people are, are watching and paying attention to. And uh, could you share some experiments which demonstrate our uh, influence? For example, uh, uh, without even, you say, saying a word, we have influence. Yeah, so, you know, if you sort of take this idea that people are noticing you um, and that because of that, you know, they are potentially sort of thinking about you and what might be going on in your head when they talk to you or when they do something, then you can see how you actually can sort of impact people without saying a thing. So one example that I give is actually from um, my advisor, Tori Higgins' research. And he's done work on something called the saying is believing effect. So when we talk to another person, we tend to say things we think that they're likely to want to hear. Right. So if I know you have a political orientation, a certain political orientation, or if I know, you know, even if you like a particular restaurant, right? When I talk about that restaurant to you, knowing you like it, I'm not going to talk about how awful I think it is. I'm going to sort of temper the way I talk about it and tune the way I talk about it to you. So if you're in a room and I'm talking about something, I'm noticing you more than you might realize. The way I'm talking about that, I'm tuning my message to you, right? So, you know, if I'm in a meeting and I happen to notice that there's a bunch of women in the meeting. Maybe I have an idea of what women think about a particular issue. And so I change my message a little bit. And what's interesting with the saying is believing effect, which uh, my advisor Tori has looked at, is that once we tune that message and we say that thing and we see people nodding along to that thing that we're saying, we start to believe that ourselves. So 
maybe I'm looking around, we're talking about benefits. And I think, oh, there's a lot of women here. Maybe I should talk about, you know, parental benefits. And then I'm talking about that. And now that I've talked about that, I'm like, oh, that is an important thing to consider. I should add that to our discussion or I should make that an important point here. And so in that way, just sort of being in a space where people are noticing you, adjusting how they talk about something to you, and therefore changing their own behavior means that simply by being there, we are actually having an impact on the people around us. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. Um, If we go deeper in this, could you tell us why are we blind to our own influence? Yeah, I think for each of sort of the different ways that we're blind to our influence, there's, there's slightly different mechanisms. But I think there are a couple overarching mechanisms that apply to most cases. So one is that we have a very specific view of what influence is. So we think that influence is when I am actively trying to change your mind and that I will know it when I see it, right? So like maybe you have one opinion, I'm trying to change you to a totally different opinion and I will know if I had influence if you tell me, you're right, I changed my mind. But in fact, that is not how most influence works, right? Influence tends to be more subtle and delayed and it can be cumulative. So, you know, I may say something and you may think about it days later, but not show to me that you're actually thinking about it, you know, but I might have had this impact that I just don't see because it's not happening in front of me. Or you may be hiding it from me or you be, you just maybe needed to let it percolate or you needed to hear it from other people as well. Um, and so we tend to miss all this invisible influence that happens when we're not there. And then when we try to guess, like, did I actually impact that person or did I actually have influence? You know, we tend to focus on the negative because of another bias that you guys have probably talked about, the negativity bias, where we focus on all the times we we tried to impact someone and it didn't work or we asked for something and someone said no. And so if I don't see the influence and I'm just guessing, I'm going to rely on the most salient memories I have of trying to influence someone and those are going to be the more negative moments. So in general, I'm going to feel like I have less influence than I actually do. So there is one point that we would like to discuss. Uh, uh, You write that we are less noticed than others, that we are less socially active than others, that we think we are less liked than we are. And we have with uh, Suzanne interview some months ago, uh, Don Moore, uh, who has written this uh, wonderful uh, uh, book, Perfectly Confidence, and we know the overconfidence uh, effect. So how do you reconciliate this idea of general overconfidence and the kind of I don't know if I could call it underconfidence you mentioned regarding our influence. Yeah, and I love Don's work, and I think that this is actually very compatible with a lot of the the studies he talks about and has done. Um, So this really seems to be an interesting domain where we tend to be underconfident. So there's so much research, as Don has talked about, you know, on overconfidence in the domains of, say, driving and feeling like we're more moral and feeling like we're, you know, we have a better vocabulary than other people and and all these kinds of domains. But 
in the social domain, sort of the domain that I like to call of winning friends and influencing people, there seems to be something special going on where we tend to be underconfident. Um, and so there's actually a researcher, Sebastian Derry, who worked with Tom Gilovich and Shai Davide here at Cornell, who looked at sort of this this prediction directly when we were when we're likely to be underconfident and when we're likely to be overconfident. And so what he found was that in domains like if you ask people, you know, how often do you go out? How social are you? How many friends do you have? He found that the average person thinks they're below average, which is a classic way of sort of looking at under and overconfidence. But in the same studies, he also asked people how big is your vocabulary compared to other people? Um, you know, instead of how often do you go out to dinner with friends, how often do you cook at home? Uh, and in those kinds of things, people were overconfident. So it seems to be that that social domain uh, flips uh, how we think about things. And one thing he talks about is that we start, when it's a social domain, we start to think about social people and the sort of exemplars of sociability, that person who's at all the parties, that person who has all the followers on like Instagram. Um, and we compare ourselves to them and we fall short. But when we think of these other things, we look inward. Like if I think of what, how, how good of a driver I am, I think about all my personal driving experiences and say, oh, I'm, I'm a really great driver. I'm definitely above average. Very interesting. So Vanessa, you've talked a few times about how hard it can be to ask people for things. And in your book, you actually talk about how this is a really powerful way of influencing people is just asking for things. So could you give us some examples of the impact of just asking? Sure. So the kinds of things that we have our participants ask in our studies are, first of all, uh, just small favors. So we've had them go out and ask someone to fill out a survey or to borrow someone's phone or to uh, donate to a cause. So we teamed up with an organization uh, here in the States called Team and Trading, which uh, donates money to cancer research, but you also run a race and you get sponsors for a race. And so we had 100 people who are participating in that. Guess how many people they would have to ask to reach a fundraising goal in the thousands of dollars and then actually keep track and it turned out they had to ask about half as many people as they expected to in order to reach their fundraising goal. Um, and so we see in with a lot of different kinds of sort of basic favor requests uh, how powerful it is to just ask for something and that people are actually surprisingly likely to say yes to that. And so you've talked about it being surprisingly likely and we're more pessimistic about our expectations of people saying yes. Why is it so important for us to know that we usually anticipate more rejection than we're actually going to experience? Yeah, I think that it really holds people back because rejection is such an unpleasant feeling um, that if we think we're likely to be rejected, we just won't ask at all. And so in some cases, you know, those are small things. Like we may just bend over backwards to find a phone or find a way to get in touch with someone if our phone dies, right? Instead of just ask the person right next to us who has a phone that's fully charged. Um, and I know a lot of people will do that, just inconvenience themselves to avoid asking a stranger for something. 
Um, but then there's also sort of bigger societal issues, right? So one thing that's talked about is the gender pay gap. And some people have explained it by, you know, women not asking as much as men. And so if you feel like you're going to be rejected, right, and you feel like that's going to be more consequential for you because you're socialized as a woman to worry about rejection and being accepted and uh, et cetera, then you may be less likely to ask. And that can lead to not only these sort of individual uh, missed opportunities and inconveniences, but also these broader issues where people just aren't asking for things that they really deserve because they're, they just assume there's no point that they're going to be rejected. Gotcha. So that's the what's going on on the asker side. Now on the askee side, one reason that the asking is so powerful is because it's hard for humans to say no. And we understand from your book that one of the reasons for that is just as human beings, we like to say yes because we like to do nice things for others on some level. And why is that? Yeah, I so, you know, we are a social species. And so we really you know, are wired to help out other people. And when we say yes, we often experience what's been referred to as a warm glow uh, of helping. So it makes us feel good. Um, it makes us look good to ourselves and to other people. And that can have reputational advantages. Uh, so there's lots of reasons that people are wired to be helpful. Um, and then, of course, there's sort of the other side which is that at the same time that we want to be helpful and we experience a warm glow from helping, it's also just really hard to say no. So when someone asks us for something, if you kind of put yourself in that situation, it's, you know, what would you do if someone came up to you and said like, oh, I, my phone is dead, could I use your phone? You know, in that moment, it's, it's hard to find the words. If you were to say no, it, it insinuates something negative about the other person potentially, that you don't trust them, that, you know, they're, they're asking for something weird when clearly there's nothing really weird about that. So there's a whole bunch of anxiety and awkwardness and embarrassment that goes along with actually rejecting another person that we forget when we're the ones doing the asking. So we tend to forget all these these sort of forces pushing people to say yes, that people are genuinely helpful, but also that when we ask someone, we're, we are essentially putting them on the spot and it's really hard to say no. I have to say, I think that was one of the most interesting and unexpected things I remember reading in your book was the power of embarrassment, right? We know people are pro-social. That's kind of something that's been well-established, but the embarrassment on the part of the person being asked, not just on the part of the person doing the asking, was very interesting. And can you can you tell us a little bit more about this embarrassment on the part of the person being asked? What is this fear of embarrassment? Why is this such a major reason we don't like to say no? Yeah, you know, and I think that the pro-social aspect and the embarrassment aspect are sort of fundamentally linked because embarrassment, you know, it is a moral emotion. It binds us to people. We feel embarrassed when we feel like we're violating a social norm or we're making things awkward between us and another person. So it really is there to maintain ties, just like our pro-social motivations are. Um, but we tend to dismiss embarrassment as just this really trivial sort of emotion, right? We think it's like about uh, tripping and doing silly things and blushing, and that's that's sort of all that it is. But you know, there are sort of 
anecdotal examples of people who are choking at the dinner table and they will stand up and leave the table and therefore leave the people who could actually help them out of embarrassment because they're so embarrassed to be choking that they'd rather kind of leave and not suffer the embarrassment than actually get the help that they need. And that can have obviously potentially devastating effects. So most people who died choking have kind of left and they're alone somewhere. Um, and so if embarrassment can have these kind of consequences that are that severe in that moment, you could think about all these other sort of instances where embarrassment can hold us back from doing things. Um, for example, maybe someone says something inappropriate and we feel like I should challenge them on that, but then everyone's going to be looking at me and what if I'm wrong and you know it's going to make it all awkward. And so those kinds of concerns, even though they, they seem so trivial, actually are incredibly powerful and can have these really important effects. And so that's also true when you're being asked for something, right? That, that when we are the ones asking, we're so focused on our own anxiety about asking that we forget that other person is also in actually this very powerful sort of emotional state. Yeah, the choking thing is an example where you can, sometimes you feel like you can die of embarrassment, but sometimes it's literally true, unfortunately. So it's very interesting how powerful the emotion is. So you mentioned, you know, people being embarrassed to speak up if someone says something inappropriate, but, and the fact that we underestimate the power of embarrassment. So this can lead to some interesting disconnects between, you know, if we were to be asked in some imaginary situation, let's say you were in an interview and someone asked you inappropriate questions in the interview, or someone said something racist in another situation, people think that they would speak up. But then in reality, when put into these experimental situations, people speak up a lot less often than they project that they would theoretically. Can you tell us more about what's going on there? Yeah, exactly. So we tend to think about these things hypothetically very different than we experience them in reality. And so part of that is what's called a hot, cold empathy gap. Um, so where we, you know, when we're in a sort of cold emotional state, when we're not in that extreme uh, sort of emotional state, we imagine, you know, behaving in all sorts of different ways. We imagine being really bold and speaking up and standing up, you know, for ourselves or for other people. Uh, but when we're actually put on the spot and we're in that hot emotional state, so many other kind of worries and fears often keep us silent. So, you know, you mentioned if you're in an interview, so Marianne LaFrance has... Um, some studies and in one of them she asks women you know if you were in an interview and you were asked inappropriate questions by the interviewer you know what would you do and what would you feel and people say I would feel angry and I would tell him to stop and I would walk out of the interview and I would refuse to answer these questions and then in another condition she actually put people in this scenario and had people who thought they were interviewing for a job be interviewed by a research assistant who ended up asking them inappropriate questions. And in that case, nobody said anything and nobody left the room or refused to answer questions. And when they reported how they felt, they didn't feel the anger that they anticipated. They actually felt afraid. So they had this very different sort of reaction where that anxiety uh, kind of held them back. And so we're really bad at guessing how we're going to feel in a particular scenario that we're not immediately in. 
Um, and as you said, that can have all sorts of ramifications for how we, you know, for ourselves, but also how we judge other people, right? When they don't speak up or when they agree to something and we think, you know, well, why didn't you just do X, Y, or Z? You know, it's very hard to imagine what they were really experiencing in that moment. Vanessa, combining the power of just asking, the fear of embarrassment, and also the fact that we are mainly oblivious to this effect, it can produce big, I would say, societal issues like misinformation and also what you just mentioned, uh, inappropriate ask. So first, about uh, misinformation, could you explain why we often bullshit, as you write in your uh, uh, book? How would you explain from your perspective and why does this bullshitting produce misinformation at the end? Yeah, so bullshitting is defined as saying something without regard for the truth. So you're not lying, you're not trying to deceive somebody, but you are just communicating and you don't care if what you're saying is true or not. Um, and people, studies show that people tend to bullshit because they just feel like they have to have something to say about everything. So John Petrocelli has some studies where he either explicitly tells people, you know, you don't have to say something here, or he just doesn't give that instruction at all and then ask the question. And so you could say like, actually, I don't, I don't have anything to say about this. I don't have a good explanation. But if you're not explicitly told that you don't have to say something, you feel like you have to say something. And then you just say whatever and you bullshit in many cases. And the problem with that is that when, you know, we talked about how people actually listen to the things we say more than we realize. Um, and they then they spread them. They go on to tell their friends, you know, what they heard. Uh, and so when we bullshit, we may unintentionally be sort of spreading misinformation, just saying things that aren't true that people are actually taking to heart and then sharing with other people. And that's true in person. It's also in true, uh, uh, it's true on social media. So there's work on what's called the invisible audience that when you put something out on social media, more people see it than you tend to think. Um, and so that means if you're just you know, retweeting things that you don't know are true, that that's having a bigger impact on the people who see it than you may realize. Uh, thanks. Uh, I think it is uh, very insightful. Some big societal uh, issues is about inappropriate ask that could lead even to uh, Me Too cases. So uh, could you tell us more about how this happens and maybe more precisely why it's possible for us to make much more inappropriate asks that we think with big negative impact on others? Yeah, so actually, you know, as we were talking about, a lot of times people will agree to things, not just, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, but because they find it really hard to say no in the moment. And we tend to underestimate that when we're the ones doing the asking. And when I started this research, we mostly were using innocuous pro-social favor requests. But eventually, because that was the mechanism, you know, because it was this discomfort mechanism, we said, what else? might also, you know, show the same kind of pattern. 
And so we started running studies where we had our participants ask for unethical things. So in one study, we actually had our participants go into libraries and ask people to vandalize library books. And we found that once again, people were more likely to say yes than our participants expected. And they would comment like, you know, this is wrong, we shouldn't be doing this, but they would still go ahead and do it because it was more uncomfortable to say no than it was to just do this thing they didn't want to do. And as we saw that sort of extend to those kinds of contexts and Me Too was starting to happen, uh, we realized, and we actually had started this before Me Too really came out, but we realized that there were other contexts like unwanted sexual advances where the same dynamic could potentially play out, where someone could, you know, ask a colleague out and feel like, you know, if they're not interested in me, I'll just go for it and they'll just say no and not realize how hard it is for that other person to say no. And so we we had done a little bit of, of this research and then the, the sort of big name Me Too stories started coming out. Uh, and one of them was Aziz Ansari, who had someone say that essentially they went on a date with Aziz Ansari, who is a comedian, who has, you know, a Netflix special and, and whatnot. Um, and so she went on a date with him and he kept pressuring her and she felt really violated and sent him a text message the next day saying, like, I felt really uncomfortable. Uh, I kept trying to tell you no and you kept pushing on. And he said he was so surprised because he felt like everything had been consensual. And so there was a similar sort of disconnect. You know, he felt like he was just asking, right, and not realizing how uncomfortable she felt saying no. And so in some of the studies we've run, we've had people recall instances where this has happened in their past. So they recall times that they either had a colleague ask them out who they weren't interested in, or they themselves asked someone out who wasn't interested in them. And we asked them how uncomfortable it was for the rejecting party to say no. And the people who remember the time they rejected someone say that was really hard. And the people who were rejecting are like, that wasn't so hard for them. And it's easy to see why you would think that, right? You're not in that person's head. They did say no to you. So you feel like, okay, that, that must not have been so hard. But it actually uh, was very hard for the people who were on sort of the receiving end, and it affected them in a bunch of downstream uh, negative ways. And uh, that's why uh, you mentioned that when we are in position of power, there is a specific responsibility. Could you uh, elaborate a little on this? Yeah, so all of these effects are exacerbated, right, when we're in positions of power, because when we're in positions of power, you know, a, a simple request becomes a command, right? Uh, my colleague Adam Galinsky says, like, a powerful person's whisper becomes a shout. So the things we say really land a lot harder when we're in positions of power. So it makes it doubly important that we're aware of these sorts, these sorts of dynamics. Um, and ironically, when we're in positions of power, we also experience a bunch of psychological effects that make us less likely to sort of check in on the way we're impacting other people and to feel like, oh, people have agency to say no when they want to say no to things because we feel like that because we're in power. And so we forget that not everyone is in the same situation as us. And so it really sort of takes this, this extra effort to check in 
to gather information from other people and to really take responsibility uh, and feel not just the opportunity that comes with power, but also the responsibility that comes with power um, to make sure that we're not even inadvertently misusing it. Yeah, there are some really interesting studies that have looked at, you know, for every email a CEO sends, the number of hours of work it generates for people on their team. It's, it's quite surprising to see the ratio. Um, but obviously, this question of power leads us to the really important topic of how do we use our influence well and ethically? And in your book, you suggest that we should have three goals to guide us on this, seeing feeling and experiencing our influence over others. So it'd be great to come back to each of these. The first one being seeing the impact of our actions on others. Could you suggest one strategy for our listeners to get out of their own heads and, and see this for themselves? Sure. So the idea behind this sort of first goal is that when we look at the world, as I sort of mentioned earlier, we see everybody else, right? We see the ways that they're doing things that impact us. We see the way that they're doing things that impact one another. And the thing missing from that scene through our own two eyes is ourselves, right? We don't see what we're doing that contributes to that dynamic as well. And so one of the first things I suggest is getting out of your own head by taking a third party perspective whenever possible and sort of imagining yourself as a fly on the wall or just a neutral observer watching a scene unfold and making sure that you're in that scene so that you could see what did I say that people might be reacting to. And this comes from work by a number of people, but one person is uh, Eli Finkel, who's done this with married couples, where he's had them take three points of time over the course of a year to spend 20 minutes reflecting on a recent argument they had with their spouse by writing about it from a third party perspective. So it's really just 20 minutes, um, so really, really short uh, writing exercise. And what he finds is just taking that short amount of time to reflect on things from a third party perspective actually maintains marital satisfaction, whereas it normally drops in the first years of marriage. And so it really seems to to have these profound effects, just taking those moments to, to see things from someone else's perspective, not necessarily the person you're impacting, but just a neutral third party. You know, what are what what are you potentially adding to this situation? Okay, so seeing techniques should be be a fly in the wall in your imagination and do a simple, simple writing exercise. So then the second technique you mentioned is feeling the impact of our actions. So what could we do to experience these feelings so we can better predict and understand how other people might feel? Yeah, so this one is really sort of an answer to uh, a lot of uh, books, you know, a lot of very famous books that have suggested that you should perspective take. So lots of people are like, you should take people's perspectives more. That will give you insight into the impact that you have on them and how they're feeling about things, etc. But in fact, we're pretty bad at taking other people's perspectives. You know, when we're trying to take someone's perspective, we never really get out of our own heads. So, you know, we may not realize, even if we're sort of taking this third party perspective and thinking, saying like, oh, I said that thing. It may be very hard for us to realize how that thing landed in, on another person, right? So we may know what we intended by saying something and say, oh, yeah, you know, my intention was good. I'm sure they, they took it that way. But we may be wrong, and we often are wrong. And so 
the big thing that research has shown is actually incredibly simple. And it's that instead of trying to guess or make assumptions about what someone else is feeling or thinking, you want to ask them. And so it's really just actually getting out of your own head and information gathering to make sure that you're not making assumptions that aren't true. So that could be asking someone directly, you know, uh, having a conversation and asking what they thought of something. It could be asking people around another person to, to get insight, but it's basically getting information from outside sources besides your own head. So we're seeing the power of asking yet again in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And the third approach is experiencing our influence. So how can we learn about our influence through direct experience? Yeah, so this one is actually, it's a fun one because people have come up with like even games to kind of test out your influence. So. There's this game called rejection therapy, which is not a real therapy, but it is based on you know some, some real therapeutic uh, techniques like aversion therapy. And the idea is to go out and try to get yourself rejected every day so that you don't worry about rejection so much. And the people who wind up playing this game, you know, talk about how, first of all, it's a lot harder to get rejected than you think. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, people are so much more willing to do things for me. But also that it's not, it doesn't hurt so bad to be rejected, right? You get over it, you get used to it, et cetera. And so, you know, one of the sort of things is to actually get out there, ask for things more, discover that they're not so bad, you know, that people are more willing to do things for you, that it's okay when they're not. They're actually, people actually are often much kinder when they're rejecting you than you expect. Um, also testing out your influence in other ways. So like one uh, set of studies I have involves giving compliments. So just telling people nice things has a big impact on them. Uh, it can make you feel good as well. And it's just a tiny way to sort of test out your influence. The big caveat I, I always put on this one is that, you know, there's less things we don't want people to go out and test, you know, like asking for inappropriate things, asking for unethical things, like all the kinds of things we talked about. So you can't sort of get insight to, into your influence in every possible way using the testing out strategy. Um, also, you have to sort of reflect after the fact. So the problem is if you do get rejected, you may turn around and kind of interpret that experience in a more negative way than it actually was. So if you go out, you ask for something, you get rejected, then you want to do the other things we talked about. Take a third-party perspective, you know, get outside information because chances are you're going to interpret that interaction more negatively than it actually was. And so you kind of need to be testing it out but also using these other strategies as well. Right, like your experience at Penn Station where you felt really awful about it and then you looked at the objective data and saw, oh, well, more people said yes than I am emotionally perceiving. Great. So before handing back to Eric for a final question, I would love to have your perspective on a specific challenge. So at BVA Nudge Consulting, we often accompany leaders and managers in their work. So we're really interested to know what advice you would have for them to better use their influence for the best of their organization and clients. Yeah, I'd say, you know, I think the most important thing is not to make assumptions that you want to ask what the best use is. You know, once you're in a position of power or leadership, a lot of us get to that place after kind of, um, 
being in a lower level for a long time and trying to prove ourselves for a long time and come up with all these great ideas. And then we get into that powerful position and we want to prove to everyone why we're there. And so we want to come up with all the right answers. But we forget that once we're in that position, we don't need to keep proving things. At that point, we're kind of in charge and now we need to start listening. And so I'd say instead of sort of trying to figure out the best use, ask people, listen, don't make assumptions and get as much input from other people, whether it's your clients or, you know, um, your colleagues or whoever it is, uh, to try to figure out what is the best direction. Thanks a lot, Vanessa. We are close to the end of our conversation, so we would like to end by asking you a bit about the future and any of your uh, new projects. So first, do you have any new research you are looking forward to working on? Yeah, so my most recent research is looking at, so I we've been talking about compliance a lot, basically just whether someone agrees to, someone, to something. And so I started working with uh, a law professor, Rosanna Summers, on the question of consent. And so basically the line between consent and compliance. So if someone agrees to something but they don't feel free to say no, did they really consent to that or did they merely comply? Um, and so we've been looking at this in the laboratory a little bit and we've been doing these studies where we try to mimic uh, a police search, uh, basically where a police officer would ask someone to search something and we're asking people if we could search their phones. So we we ask people in one condition, we say, if we were to run a study where we asked you to unlock your phone and we were to search it, you know, would you let us do that? And then in another condition, we actually just go in and we say, okay, we'd like you to unlock your phone so that we could search it. We're just going to take it out of the room for a minute. And of course, in the condition where we ask people what they think they would do, right? They say, most of them say like, no way, I would not let you search my phone. But over 90% say yes when we actually ask them. It's one of the biggest effects I've ever found. And so we're finding, you know, that when we ask people after the fact, they didn't feel free to say no in the moment. You know, presumably they just consented to a search, but it doesn't feel that way to them. And so we're trying to sort of understand the subjective feeling of consent, even if legally you might have consented to something and by the way we don't actually search anyone's phones it's just we we make it look like we did we're not actually doing that <laughs> okay thank you uh, and my final uh, question to conclude what is your hope for the future of the psychology of influence yeah i you know i think there's a couple things that i think are really interesting future directions and influence so one is this approach of studying the influencer so there's so many you know uh, sort of suggestions for how to get people to do things but i really like this idea of what are our own perceptions what we imagine is going to work right not just what will work to influence people but what we think is going to work and when we have these misperceptions. And so that's that's been my main area of research, and I think that's a really interesting um, thing to look at. And the other thing is related to this consent compliance piece. I'm really interested in um, the line between manipulation and persuasion or influence. I actually had a student email me recently and say, you know, you just it was right after my social influence lecture. And he was like, I always feel like I'm manipulating people when I do these things. You know, what's the difference? How do I know when I am or whether I'm just persuading? And I didn't have a good answer to that. And I think that that's a place where we can really um, kind of 
push on and see uh, see if we can sort of answer those kinds of questions. So interesting. And I think, you know, something that's become clearer to me through this conversation is the difference between influence and persuasion in terms of the active effort versus that invisible influence that you talked about at the beginning, which I think is really nicely uh, depicted on your cover of your book with, with the ripple effect. Right. Um, so I know we're just about out of time. So we want to say a huge thank you to you, Vanessa, for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with, perhaps, where they can find out more about you and your work? For sure. And thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Um, you can find you know, more about uh, my work in my book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, which is available most places. Um, and you can go to my website, which is Vanessa Bonds. Bonds is B-O-H-N-S. Uh, VanessaBonds.com. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Prof Bonds. Thanks a lot, Vanessa. It was a wonderful uh, conversation. So a uh, big thank you. And we highly recommend to our listener to read your book because nothing is better than reading the book to know quite everything. Thanks a lot. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.